0: Hello again, podcast listeners, I am Dr. James Cole, and I once again am excited to share with you my latest chapter of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I feel that today's topic may upset some of you out there. You see, I'm going to devote today's time to peeling back the layers of that stinking onion known as our poor health status in general, and more specifically, America's out-of-control health conditions. I'm talking about the sector of patients out there who have medical problems which are always out of control, which can cause them chronic pain, chronic suffering, chronic disability, and often necessitate regular trips to an immediate care center or an emergency room. I will eventually get into the specific examples, but suffice it to say that there are plenty of reasons why so many Americans have such poor health and out of control healthcare medical conditions, and there's plenty of blame for it to be passed around. But whereas I'm going to cast a portion of that blame on our healthcare system, and I will talk about this in detail, another equally significant reason why Americans have so many out-of-control health problems and why so many Americans have so many health-related disabilities as a result of their own poor health choices. Yes, in many cases, there's no question that Americans are to blame for many of their out-of-control health conditions. And so, now that you've had my brief introduction to today's topic, you'll likely understand why I said that I may upset some of you out there. And some of you listening will be the very people that I will soon be pointing my finger at. So I hope that most of you have relatively thick skin and have the metal to continue listening. And with that, let's dive right in to today's topic. If you listen through to the very end of my podcast on the complexities of all the different types of health insurance, you may remember me saying that I recommend that Americans do all that they can to stay healthy, as accessing the healthcare system inevitably results in at least some portion, some sort of out-of-pocket costs, even to those with the best of health insurance benefits. I sincerely mean this. As a provider and a healthcare consumer, I am frustrated with how much everything costs and with the difficulties many Americans have trying to access regular care. It would behoove everyone to do all that they can, that is, to take control of what they have the ability to control so that they don't necessarily need to see a doctor, at least urgently, that is. I am a doctor, but we are no different from everyday Americans. We develop high blood pressure, diabetes, and we're subject to all of the usual healthcare maladies. But knowing as much about healthcare as I do, I do all that I can to avoid needing to go to the doctor. I go out of my way to stay healthy, and I implore the rest of you to do the same. I do have family members with medical problems, which require trips to various different types of doctors. And of course, that translates to a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs. Now, if one had the option of paying a little for something great, or a lot for something of poor quality, I can't imagine any sound, rational human being choosing the latter option. But that is what so many people do by choosing to not try to live a healthy life. An unhealthy lifestyle leads to poor health. Poor health leads to a lot of medical problems. A lot of medical problems leads to a lot of doctor visits, medications, and often hospitalizations. And that all costs a lot of money. So in the end, choosing to not trying to live a healthy lifestyle results in poor health and a lot of financial hardship. So once again, I truly implore everyone to try to stay healthy. And if you have a chronic medical condition, do your best to keep it under control. The U.S. has a lot to be boastful about, but we are not a nation of healthy individuals. In fact, the U.S. ranks about 35th out of 169 countries evaluated for healthiest status. That means that 34 nations are healthier than we are as a whole. The top five countries on the list are Spain, Italy, Iceland, Japan, and Switzerland. But even Cuba! is five positions higher than the US, coming in at 30th place. How can this be? How can Cuba be a healthier nation than the United States of America? As a busy surgeon in a large metropolitan region, I see many patients. And where I see the sickest patients is in the hospital. It makes sense. Those with chronic medical conditions who can make it by do so as outpatients. But when they simply get too sick or too complicated to remain at home, they come to the emergency room and get admitted for whatever out-of-control condition they need fixing. And when I say out of control, I will tell you that there are patients out there who seem to have absolutely no interest in even trying to help themselves. For example, diabetic patients need to keep their glucose levels at or about 140. And frankly, that's a high number I'm quoting. And a good measure of whether this is happening is the A1C blood test. Anything less than seven is relatively acceptable, eight is bad, and nine is really troubling. But I often see patients with a random blood glucose of over 300 and an A1c of 10, 11, 12, or even higher. If patients only knew, if they could just embrace the fact that when blood sugars live in the greater than 200 range, that their bodies just can't work right, their immune system breaks down as their white blood cells, the infection fighting cells, don't work well with such high glucose levels, and thus they often develop terrible skin and tissue fold infections, or develop huge abdominal abscesses, or they get admitted to the intensive care unit with out-of-control sepsis all because they did little, if anything, to take control of their diabetes and take their blood sugar problem seriously. Another example includes what I would call relatively young patients, people in their mid-40s or 50s with significant heart disease who may have had one or even two heart attacks or who have damaged their heart so seriously that they are always teetering on the edge of congestive heart failure, who eat the richest in fatty foods, and who still smoke. And the same goes for those with chronic lung disease or COPD who can barely blow out a candle and should probably be on home oxygen, but refuse to give up their cigarettes. And finally, the subject of weight is something that needs to be mentioned. I know that it's a sensitive topic, and I know that there are a lot of reasons why so many Americans carry too much weight, but no matter how you slice it, being 100 pounds overweight is simply unhealthy. If we look at the leading causes of death and major disability in the U.S., the ones at the very top include cardiac disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, stroke, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. Several of these diseases run in families. That is, if one's mother, father, or siblings had these problems, there may be a genetic predisposition for the rest of the family members to develop the diseases. This is especially true in patients with a family history of heart disease, certain cancers, and diabetes. And when one has a family history of these problems, it's especially important that the rest of the family do all that they can, not only to undergo all the screening tests at the appropriate times to identify these potential diseases, but to also control all that is controllable to avoid developing these various conditions. Thus, those who have a family history of heart disease should avoid cigarettes at all cost. They should maintain a reasonable degree of physical activity, they should avoid cholesterol-rich foods, and they should keep their weight within a reasonable range. Those with a strong family history of colon cancer or breast cancer should have appropriate screenings, like colonoscopies, mammograms, and physical exams, all within the timelines well-established by the various cancer societies. Because cancer is much more prevalent in patients with obesity, it would be prudent to maintain a healthy weight. Patients with a family history of diabetes should avoid excessive sugars, have their blood glucose levels periodically checked by their primary care physicians, and because obesity so often leads to the development of diabetes, maintaining a healthy weight is exceedingly important. It's also important to see a doctor regularly so as to identify common disorders which lead to chronic disease. For example. Because high blood pressure is so common, because nobody can truly sense when their blood pressure is elevated, regular screening for undiagnosed hypertension is essential. And if one is diagnosed with high blood pressure, it's important to take blood pressure medications as prescribed. People who choose to not see a doctor or who choose to not take their blood pressure medication as prescribed and walk around for years with hypertension greatly damage the small vessels of the body which course through the various organs. Long-standing, uncontrolled or poorly controlled hypertension leads to microvascular disease of the brain, leading to eventual dementia and stroke. Hypertension also causes damage to the vessels of the kidneys, greatly damaging or increasing the risk of needing long-term dialysis. And it also leads to heart failure, coronary artery disease, heart attack, impotence, and a whole host of other problems. But it's always surprising to me at just how many stubborn people out there simply refuse to invest in their own well-being and refuse to make the lifestyle changes necessary to remain healthy. And whereas I'm on kind of a roll, I'd like to continue talking about the bad and ugly, but I definitely want to take a short break here to talk about one of the really impressive and really good aspects of healthcare in America. I want to talk about all of the advances made within the last two decades to better the lives of those unfortunate patients who have lost arms and legs as a result of traumatic injury or disease. This is actually a tiny subcategory within a huge topic, which I'll speak on sometime in the future, which I call healthcare advances as a result of war. Whereas people have lost limbs for millennia as a result of farm injury, battle wounds, or gangrene, only recently have the prosthetics become so much more user-friendly. In 2007, the Center for the Intrepid opened on the base of Brooke Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, and has been one of the most noteworthy facilities providing state-of-the-art artificial limbs to those injured in Iraq, Afghanistan, or in some capacity supporting the war effort. The -the state-of-the-art center performs advanced research and educates not only the amputees and their families, but the myriads of therapists who will be providing long-term care to those needing prosthetics. This facility uses virtual reality technology and motion analysis labs to analyze gait or walking patterns so as to identify which tiny refinements in prosthetic design will best optimize an amputee's function and comfort. The Center for the Intrepid also uses brain mapping electrocortography to pick up the tiny signals emitted from the brain when, say, the patient wants to open his hand, the hand which no longer exists. This type of signal mapping is then used to build a bioprosthetic arm or hand, which uses sensors to trigger the movements in the artificial limb so as to create the movement in the prosthesis which the brain desires. In addition, artificial limbs have been designed to do far more than look good and mimic human movement. Some are designed to facilitate a sprinter's ability to run fast again, or to allow mountain climbers to once again scale the peaks, or simply to get people around at home in the middle of the night using as little energy as possible. Whereas nothing in the field of artificial limb technology has yet designed which makes a better person better than he or she was prior to the devastating injury, the advances made most recently are truly exemplary. Thus, I categorically include advances in prosthetics and biotechnology as something very good and very positive about healthcare in America. Okay, so now let's get back to my main topic. There are several prominent factors which contribute to America's poor health, and these include cigarette smoking, poor nutritional choices, lack of physical activity, excessive alcohol consumption, healthcare access issues, the high cost of health care, and inadequate primary care management. Of those seven categories listed, four of them are exclusively controlled by the patient. That is, individuals choose whether or not they smoke, eat too much food or the wrong foods, exercise regularly, if at all, and drink too much. And whereas I'm not saying that there isn't a ton of stress in this world, which causes people to light up a cigarette now and then or have a few too many drinks. And I know that there are a lot of people who work really hard and can't seem to find any time to eat right or exercise. But it needs to be acknowledged that we as Americans are failing in this category and we all need to make better choices with respect to our modifiable health risk factors. And whereas most people have at least one vice, if any of us has even the slightest inkling that we're letting our bodies get way out of control, we absolutely need to do something about it. And for those who are simply too blind to recognize their own self-destruction, then in my opinion, family members, friends, and certainly physicians need to help them to open their eyes. But I recognize this is easier said than done. How do we tell our friend or coworker that he or she is killing him or herself without being accused of shaming them? Society has become so fragile that it seems that nobody can handle even the slightest bit of criticism these days. Thus, even many physicians no longer feel comfortable confronting a patient whose lifestyle choices are clearly self destructive. And where some people might feel courageous enough to tell a loved one that he or she needs to take his blood pressure medicine or get a screening colonoscopy, it's probably not a good idea for anyone other than a healthcare provider to talk to one about one's weight. Let the doctor be the bad guy, because, as I said, it really is a very sensitive matter. Most of us do carry too much body fat, whether uh, we either eat and drink too much, don't perform enough physical activity or exercise, or more than likely it's a combination of this, those two factors. But being overweight is a result of our nation's prosperity. And in fact, being heavy was historically associated with those who are among the haves versus those among the have nots. And whereas being overweight is not the end of the world, and whereas I certainly don't feel that anyone should shame another person for carrying a few extra pounds. When overweight turns into a condition that significantly increases one's major risk of disability or death, then the subject needs to be discussed. Increased weight and overall body fat is increasingly associated with many different types of cancers, including esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, uterine cancer, kidney cancer, and cancers of the colon and rectum. It is increasingly associated with stroke, with kidney failure, with asthma, blood clots, and infertility. In fact, there are nearly 40 medical conditions which these patients are much more likely to develop, and about a dozen very serious, potentially fatal health conditions, which are more likely to develop if one's weight gets way out of control. And to make matters more complicated, it is so much harder for healthcare professionals to take care of those who are extremely large. It's harder to perform an accurate physical exam on them. It's harder to physically move them. It's harder to rehabilitate them with physical therapy. It's harder to insert a breathing tube. It's harder to keep them clean. And it's much harder to perform surgery on them, It's even harder to get them certain imaging studies as more and more people out there simply can't fit into a conventional CT scanner or or into an MRI machine. And if we want to talk about money for a hot second, being more than 100 pounds overweight costs the US economy about 270 billion dollars per year due to increased need for medical care and due to loss of economic productivity. Carrying over 100 pounds of unnecessary weight often leads to disabling arthritis and severe back pain, stress, urinary incontinence, depression, and spontaneous hernias. And whereas these latter examples typically don't kill anyone, it makes it absolutely miserable for those affected. Many of these Americans are in too much pain to work, and thus their economic productivity becomes a net negative as some turn to the government to subsidize their existence. And those in this particular category who undergo an inguinal or an abdominal wall hernia repair, they are much more likely to have their surgical repair fall apart. There's simply too much stress on the surgical repair. It's a matter of simple physics. Cigarette smoking is a well-established cancer-causing agent and is a major accelerator of cardiovascular disease, including heart attack and stroke. Children are taught during their grade school health classes that smoking is bad, yet people continue to choose to smoke, and people continue to die as a result. Nearly half a million people die in the U.S. each year of cigarette-related illness, and nearly one-fifth of all premature deaths can be attributed to smoking. If you smoke, your risk of developing coronary artery disease, heart attack, or congestive heart failure is up to four times higher than if you do not smoke. The same goes for the risk of developing a stroke. 90% of all lung cancer deaths are directly caused by cigarettes, and 80% of all COPD deaths, that is, from emphysema and chronic lung disease, are due to past or present cigarette smoking. But the risks go even farther than that. Smoking causes cancer of the mouth and throat, of the esophagus and bladder, of the stomach, pancreas, and other organs. It can cause premature senility from damage to the small vessels of the brain, which supply the brain with the oxygen necessary to keep the cells alive. It causes peripheral vascular disease, increasing the risk of toe, foot, and leg amputation. And smoking contributes to poor surgical outcomes as smokers' wounds heal more slowly and are at significantly increased risk of developing a postoperative wound infection. Yet despite these risks, people still choose to smoke. Whereas nicotine addiction is said to be as addictive as heroin or cocaine, And thus, it's best to never start smoking. Those who do smoke need to all make a concerted effort to stop. In other words, I'm well aware of the advocates of vaping and marijuana smoking, those who tout that neither has proven to be as harmful as cigarettes. I'll bet dollars to donuts that within less than a decade, both will be found to cause serious health problems and both will be found to have exerted the same adverse effects on the body as if they had smoked tobacco-containing cigarettes. So my advice is to smoke nothing. Lack of physical activity is an epidemic problem, leading to a general state of physical deconditioning. Whereas a century ago, most people either worked on farms or in factories, more and more people now have sedentary jobs where they don't even leave their desks other than to go to lunch or to go to the bathroom. Very few calories are burned banging away at a keyboard and thus people who don't want their bodies to turn into soft piles of mush need to be physically more active. Walking around the block would be the smartest start, yet most people don't even do this. Spending three to four mornings or evenings per week on a treadmill or doing active cardio exercise would do wonders for the body, but most want to have nothing to do with it. Weight training builds muscle tone and overall strength, but most gym memberships go largely unused. America's youth used to play in the parks and streets every day after school and from dusk until dawn in the summer, but video games played while seated or even lying down is now the pastime of choice, not only for children, but for an entire generation of young adults addicted to some sort of screen. And for those who sit more than stand, bit by bit, the muscles start to weaken. And as people get heavier and as their muscles get weaker, climbing stairs can become a chore. And if enough time passes, coupled with even more weight gain, transitioning from sit to stand could become problematic. And once these patients cross a particular age threshold, their weakened and frail muscles make them a fall risk. And those who are prone to falling eventually do fall, and sooner or later, something breaks. Lack of physical activity slowly erodes away at one's overall health and general independence. And based on countless observations of patients whose health and independence have slipped through their fingers, a common saying among those in my profession is, movement promotes life and lack of movement promotes death. So there you have it, people. Choose wisely. The last of the four patient-controlled variables which contributes to America's overall poor health is excessive alcohol consumption. Now, to be honest, I truly don't know how much alcohol is too much alcohol, but I do know that there are a lot of people out there who admit to consuming six drinks per day or even 12 drinks per day. And there's a saying in my business that whatever the amount the patient states that he's drinking, whatever the patient admits to drinking, if you double it, that's probably the real truth. And there are plenty of patients out there who I treat who go into alcohol withdrawal a few days following a hospital admission. So I know with absolute certainty that some people just drink way too much. I guess it would be reasonable to advise that if you have any inkling that you drink too much or if someone who cares for you or who respects you a lot tells you that you drink too much, you probably do drink too much. And if you do, it's probably a great idea to throttle back. Having practiced trauma surgery for several decades, I saw far too many alcohol-related traumatic injuries and alcohol-related deaths. I saw innumerable hospitalized patients go through alcohol withdrawal, increasing their length of stay, increasing their healthcare costs and increasing their secondary complications such as pneumonia and DVT blood clots. And many of those who do go through alcohol withdrawal are often too weak to go home following hospitalization and need to spend some time in a nursing home or in a rehab facility. And I'm not talking about people in their 60s or 70s, but even people in their 40s and 50s. So as to reiterate, if you have any inkling that you drink too much or if someone who cares for you or respects you a lot, tells you that you do drink too much, you probably need to slow down or even stop drinking altogether. Okay, so now that I've covered the patient-centered reasons why Americans are so unhealthy, let me talk about the systemic issues which contribute to why so many Americans have out of control health conditions. It's no secret that many Americans have healthcare access issues. And approximately 10% of all the people in this country have no healthcare insurance of any sort. And although there are a number of charity clinics throughout the country, uninsured patients are often reticent to seek regular care. And another 20% of Americans rely on state Medicaid welfare programs, yet not all physicians accept Medicaid. And in fact, there are plenty of regions within the U.S. where entire medical specialties will not see those with Medicaid. Thus, a significant percentage of patients can't see certain doctors even if they wanted to. And Unlike in past days where primary care physicians used to work acutely ill patients into their daily work schedules, there simply aren't enough physician slots out there to see every patient who calls into a doctor's office. Sometimes patients have to wait several days to see his or her primary care doctor and out of frustration turns to the ER for basic care. But emergency rooms are not primary care clinics. Their goal is to rule out an emergency and thus those with non-emergent complaints often wait for many hours to see a doctor and often simply leave without being seen. But access to care is a two-way street, whereas emergency rooms are not primary care clinics, primary care clinics are not emergency rooms. PCPs expect to have somewhat of a doctor-patient relationship with all of those on their panel so as to have an updated and accurate listing of their patient's health care conditions and other variables. It is not reasonable for patients to schedule appointments and just not show up. When this happens three, four, or even five times sometimes, these patients simply will no longer be welcome and they'll be disengaged from that doctor's practice forever perhaps. And if a primary care physician is going to juggle his or her schedule to get a patient squeezed in on an urgent basis, that patient will likely only have about 15 minutes to spend with the doctor. If the patient hasn't been to the doctor for years, and if the patient's list of medical conditions and medications has changed significantly or is lengthy or complicated, that visit to the doctor will likely not be resolved at that visit. Thus, another office visit becomes necessary, and the period of waiting... In between, visits may simply be too long and the patient's medical condition may worsen. Thus, access to care is best accomplished on a regular basis with short, more frequent visits to the doctor rather than infrequent or rare major problem-solving sessions which the doctor simply does not have time for. But regardless, many people in this country do have a problem getting access to healthcare, be it primary care or specialized care, and that does contribute to America's out-of-control health status. And sixth on our list of seven, the high cost of healthcare is a bonafide reason why some patients' medical conditions get so far out of control. The simple fact that most healthcare insurance plans require patients to pay a substantial deductible and then a share of the total bill dissuades a lot of people from getting the most appropriate care. For example, my partners and I sadly take care of far too many patients who presented the emergency room with nearly or completely obstructing colon cancer. More often than not, these patients who are barely making ends meet, simply cannot afford to pay much of anything out of pocket. Despite having access to primary care physicians and despite doctors repeatedly advising patients to get scheduled for their screening colonoscopy, many patients fail to do so, fearing yet another large bill which they simply cannot afford to pay. And then one day, the balls obstruct. In most cases, the patients can't hold anything down, and the abdominal pain becomes unbearable. The patients get taken into the ER and somehow get diagnosed with an obstructing colon cancer, which often requires urgent surgery. But the sad thing is that it was all preventable. Nearly all colon cancers arise from precancerous polyps, and every one of them starts out very small, often just a few millimeters in their earliest stages. Nearly all polyps grow very slowly, and if a polyp is identified during a screening colonoscopy and if it's removed, the risk of that now-removed polyp evolving into a cancer is zero. In my example just given, cancer was not just caught early, it, in fact, was prevented entirely. But if left unchecked and allowed to grow for many years, and often more than a decade, precancerous polyps can turn cancerous and then start growing at an exponential rate. Since in nearly all cases it takes a polyp so long to evolve into an obstructing colon cancer, in most cases in excess of 10 years, if someone puts off having a recommended colonoscopy for an entire decade merely because of unaffordable costs, we have a problem. And since obstructing colon cancers are always very large and are always identified in the highest cancer stages, the chances of dying are also on the higher end. Certainly, there are people who put off cancer screening merely because they are scared. And that's another big issue all entirely. But if cost is truly their steepest barrier to seeking health care, then that is exemplary of the ugly aspect of healthcare care in America. And finally, inadequate and fragmented primary care management is one of the prominent factors noted which contribute to America's poor health. Yes. Despite patients having health insurance, and despite them paying their share of their healthcare costs, and despite them avoiding too much food and drink, eating smartly, exercising frequently, and following all of their doctor's recommendations, lack of communication and coordination of overall care on the part of our nation's primary care physicians, and all types of doctors, I might add, directly contributes to a nation of unhealthy Americans. This, my friend, is undeniably bad. As I've said in previous podcasts, primary care physicians used to be the captains of the ship. They once took ownership for all of their patients' well-being, they diligently coordinated care in the clinics, and they proudly managed their patients' care when hospitalized. But most primary care physicians no longer even pay a single visit to their patients when too sick to remain out of the hospital, relinquishing that one time-honored privilege to a shift-working hospitalist who has absolutely no intention or desire to follow up their hospitalized patients following discharge. Care plans created in the hospital aren't necessarily communicated back to the primary care physicians, incidentally identified abnormalities discovered during an ER visit or hospital stay may fall through the cracks, and patients unknowingly suffer the ramifications. Primary care physicians defer aspects of their patient's care to specialists, yet specialists assume that the primary care physician is following through with recommendations made back to the generalist. Thus, unless the patient acts as his own advocate, nobody may be coordinating overall care. And whereas this did not make the top of any list as to why Americans' health is an embarrassing 35th place compared to the others, healthcare illiteracy is something I've seen a lot of. Far too many Americans and immigrants accessing the U.S. healthcare system simply do not have a very good understanding of human health. Far too many people seem to have no awareness of their own disease process or their prescribed treatments and thus are either willfully, unknowingly, or inadvertently non-compliant and their healthcare illiteracy and continued failure to control these modifiable risk factors within their power create the perfect storm for body failure. Despite many of these patients having health insurance of some form or another, they don't take care of themselves. They simply don't comply with treatment plans. They don't see a doctor on a regular basis. These patients often only seek medical attention when they are in crisis mode, when they are literally on death's door. And yet, despite periodic, lengthy emergency hospital admissions, these individuals continue to repeat the cycle over and over, continuously straddling the line between life and death. If these patients were children and we saw parents neglecting their kids' health problems to the point of needing frequent hospitalization, often over and over for conditions typically well-managed by other children's parents... DCFS or at least the hospital social workers would get involved to at very least educate these parents and investigate whether or not they might need to get these parents additional resources to help their kids. But the same is not true when the patients are health illiterate adults. The social workers don't jump right in and educate noncompliant adults as to why they need to follow up a treatment with a treatment plan. There's no adult equivalent to the DCFS system to investigate whether patients who repeatedly show up to an ER with blood sugars in the 3-400 range are simply too medically unknowledgeable to care for themselves or are being unintentionally self-abusive. We presume that because they are of legal age to make their own decisions that they are free to be non-compliant. Because they are legally allowed to do what they want, we cannot force them to take their medications or to follow a healthcare plan. Yet, these patients aren't succeeding. They often get worse and worse and they keep coming back to the hospital for additional crisis care. Crisis care that unnecessarily consumes hospital resources and is often a drain of our private and government financial systems. Some people are simply unable to navigate the complexities of life in everything from holding down a job, to finding a place to live, to paying their bills, to following the advice of a doctor. Some are intellectually challenged, and some are plagued with mental illness. We will always have difficulty keeping these people healthy. But there are plenty of people out there who simply choose to remain in the dark when it comes to maintaining awareness of their healthcare needs. Whereas they may seem perfectly functional in this world, they somehow don't seem to know or care about their health related time bomb ticking inside them, waiting to blow at some time in the near or distant future. Whereas this particular group of Americans really needs to become more aware or educated on matters of health and start playing an active role in their overall healthcare well being, their continued lack of information, understanding, or awareness to many of the healthcare related topics. We'll keep them all in the bad column of healthcare in America. And whereas I'm sure that most people do want to know more of the truth surrounding health and well-being, they may not know how or where to seek them. And whereas I'm not tacitly opposed to alternative medicine, and in fact, I plan on discussing this at length in a future podcast, without complementing it with traditional medicine, most patients will eventually fall short. After all, there aren't any full-service alternative health hospitals out there that I'm aware of which care for patients with heart attacks, strokes, trauma, cancers, or most other common life-threatening conditions. Whereas Americans once turned to the Surgeon General for healthcare information and guidance, we have not had a uniformly trusted national healthcare spokesman since C. Everett Koop, M.D., served as Surgeon General during his tenure in the 1980s. Conflicting news reports and abundance of healthcare misinformation found on various social media platforms often make it extremely difficult for many Americans to know which healthcare information is trustworthy and which is misleading or false. In my opinion, we need a Surgeon General who will focus almost exclusively on messaging the evidence-based truths in a trustworthy, understandable, and influential manner. We need a Surgeon General who has already proven himself as a leader during past times of crisis, who has a commanding yet likable presence, who has real experience caring for a diverse population of complex patients, who can communicate to all citizens on their level, and who is able to empower them to understand the need for change. I believe that we need to go back to the day when America's doctor periodically briefed the public, talked to them on their level, and helped them to understand all that they needed to know, empowering them to make their own best informed choices. I will conclude my podcast today by reiterating that America is not among the top 10 or even the top 20 healthiest nations in this world, but in fact fall in an embarrassing 35th place. There are so many reasons why we are so unhealthy and why so many Americans let their health conditions get so far out of control. I mentioned that there are several systemic problems which contribute to our healthcare crisis status, and perhaps we can blame others for these problems. But the lion's share of the blame as to why Americans are so unhealthy, I believe, and I feel that I've carefully articulated, can often be pinned squarely on the backs of individual Americans who, for whatever reason, seem to choose to remain unhealthy. And whereas I'm sure that this topic today stirred up a lot of emotions, as it does seem to get personal for some... I hope that you all understand that my goal is to inform you of all the real truths and through knowledge to empower you, empower you all to be the very best versions of yourselves. And with that, I hope you'll continue to listen to my topics as they become available. And I once again, thank you for listening. I am Dr. James Cole, and this is Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Have a nice day. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us For our next episode of Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly.